This week on The Function Room, my guest is Professor Jocelyn Bell Burnell. She's an astrophysicist from Northern Ireland who discovered the first radio pulsars in 1967. A radio pulsar is a type of star, so she discovered a new type of star. That's like discovering a new type of star. Jocelyn was a postgraduate student at the time and famously her supervisor was awarded the Nobel Prize for radio pulsars, among other things. But there was no mention of Jocelyn, even though she helped build the interplanetary scintillation array, the thing that found it, over the course of two years. And she was the one who first noticed the strange data that was coming out from the interplanetary scintillation array, which represented the radio pulsar. Sometimes she had to review nearly a hundred foot of paper every day just to find the blips and anomalies that represented what was her hunch that this was something new. This is just one part of a long and distinguished career. We talk about just a little bit of it and the sexism in science, religion in science, the perils of managing big data, 1960s style. And at the end, inspired by Jocelyn, my daughters and I go out into the fields in the middle of the countryside where the sky is properly clear apart from the fact that it was clouds to try and see some stars what's that like for somebody who has been so immersed in a particular field i mean it's a question you could ask i suppose about anybody who's retired but particularly where the job you've been doing uh there are constant developments what's it like watching them happen do you is it a relaxed retirement or do you get antsy um i'm trying to keep up with several bits of the field of astronomy and cosmology uh i'm not attempting to keep up with all of it it's too big um and i'm doing a number of talks for public astronomical societies schools that kinds of things so it is important that i'm reasonably up to date in in the areas that i'm trying to explain to people. Is there something new you've learned recently that that uh, has blown your mind in the area of astronomy? There's a huge amount happening and it seems to get ever faster and faster. Um, I think you find old people saying that more and more as well. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> yeah. um, I'm particularly interested in what we call time domain, how things change with time. And we are discovering a lot of phenomenon, um, stars and galaxies and things where things change remarkably fast with time. So it keeps you hopping, as they say. (laughs) Is there something that, and it's not so much that you uh, were wrong about, but that something has, has been almost a paradigmatic shift in an area that you were studying and you're thinking, wow, if I knew that 30 years ago, it would have changed everything. Does it work like that? Does it change that quickly? Um, I don't think there's anything that I would say, you know, gosh, if we'd known this 30 years ago. Um, I think the way the subject has evolved over the last 30 years has been, um, to say it's predictable, suggests I know what's going to happen. But I think the way it has evolved um, has been grand. I think we've done it well. We've followed changes, quite dramatic changes, embraced them, learned to work with them, to use them. Uh, it just keeps happening. <laughs> uh, is the magic of it still as enticing as when you started out on this journey all those yeah. years ago? Yes, absolutely. Undoubtedly. Um, 
there's plenty of magic happening. And indeed, if it could just happen a little bit more slowly, <laughs> so as we could <laughs> absorb it, it would be good. Over the course of a career, has the way you've worked changed? Have you changed in how you regard uh, new developments? Well, computers came in. That's made a big difference in life. My early work yeah. was three computers. And in going to your early work, I was struck by the paper, the the, the printouts of mm-hmm. uh, the data. And I mean, we scroll in life now in computers. You know, we, we page down through a screen where we might have multiple screens. But that en- endless sheets of paper with data uh, can you can you paint a picture of what is it you're, you're 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 in a room somewhere with yards of data what's what's that like mm-hmm. yeah well i had a, a quite a long a long quite a wide desk and i'd stretch <laughs> the paper charts you know from one side to the other and then gradually shift them across the desk so you saw different bits of the the rolls of paper um it was of course perfectly normal at that stage um, I probably had more miles of paper chart than anybody else, but <laughs> do you have an, do you have an acute awareness of not spilling anything on your data, or or you know, uh, like, do you go around going, "All oh, my data is stored in that in that chunk of paper"? Mm-hmm. In, in whereas now we may perhaps have a false confidence of all data being stored in the cloud, or maybe there's backup. Is there is there a heightened sense of awareness that all these readings, you know, you put out these instruments and I guess you only you get you get a couple of shots at something because things appear and disappear over time, depending on where they are in the sky. You collect the data and there it is in that in that one place. It it must be a very precious object. Indeed. And uh, some colleagues of mine discovered to their cost that if you decide to analyze those reams of chart paper out in the sunshine, the sun bleaches the ink <laughs> and you have no trace left. That, and, mm. and of course, you would bring it outdoors to even just stretch it out to get a full sense of it, probably, or even just for a bit of a bit of fresh air. You do it for a bit of fresh air. But uh, fortunately, I worked in an attic and the attic <laughs> had got a long stretch of floor, you know, down the middle, the central aisle. So if I needed so to stretch things out, that's where on the floor in the attic. So you're you're pouring over this stretch of paper, looking at figures. And because the function room is it has its um, its its description is as a, a maths podcast. Are you looking at numbers and spotting patterns or do you look at numbers and then you apply a formula to them to compile them what are you, what are you looking at is it is it is it reams of data is it graphs is it directions of arrows what does it look like um it's a wiggly red line on um a roll of what looks like graph paper and you look at each oscillation and try and spot a pattern and try and explain it yes and you're particularly looking at the amplitude of the oscillations how far the pen is swinging and how rapidly it's swinging from side to side and the oscillations, was that like electromagnetic radiation? Is that what you were recording? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, radio waves. And so these radio waves, to get to the point where you think this is worth recording all of this, is there a moment at which you go, is it something with the naked eye or with a telescope? Where you go, that's, un- that's unusual 
I need to invest a lot of time in collecting more data about that. Where, what is the genesis of the discovery of something that is an anomaly? Well, first of all, you have the recording running the whole time. So you've got 24 hours worth of chart paper every 24 hours. So you, you don't turn things off because you never know what you might or might not pick up. So you, you keep the equipment running and recording day in, day out, or you try to. And that's partly what generates the miles of chart paper. <laughs> yeah. And then you're you're looking at the wiggles that the pen draws, which um is related to the radio waves that your antenna, your aerial, is picking up. And you get to know what's normal, you know, fairly quickly. You get to know what's normal, what's probably not interesting. It's just, you know, the normal background. And it's stuff that's over and above that background that you're you're interested in. And what keeps a person going during the days where nothing's happening? Is there is there an underlying like burning engine of fascination and passion for this that and drive and knowing there's a point and that you've there's something at the end of all of this? Like I, I presume there's lots of frustrating days. There's some fire that keeps you going through the, the dull days. Well, there's a task to be done. So, yeah. you know, like everybody in a job, some days are exciting and, and some days are a bit monotonous, but uh, you just have to keep going. So you 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 make this uh, discovery, uh, you and your team. And I was struck by watching uh, a talk you gave, I think, at Inspirefest, how you'd, you'd always been aware that you were often you're in the only woman in a lot of work situations or all work situations. But it seemed to crystallize for you when a journalist was asking you about this discovery. Can you tell us about that, about how you just you you realize just the complete gender imbalance of the area you're working in? Oh, I noticed the complete gender imbalance quite a few years before that, I can tell you. Um, But the journalist one was probably the most sort of public orientated one. Um, So. At that time in Britain, young women, well, women were not expected to have careers. They were expected to get married, be stay-at-home housewives, wives and mothers, have children, cook the husband's supper, look after the husband, um, mend his socks, you know, thoroughly there in a service role, um, servicing the men who were the people that counted. Uh, So I was defying that norm. First of all, in as an undergraduate, getting a physics degree. Um, secondly, wanting to do this research degree, this PhD, this doctorate. And thirdly, not having my eyes set on getting married and being a stay-at-home wife and mother. <laughs> it's, yeah. But uh, at that time, and still to some extent, um, there are certain newspapers, which when you open the first page, you're faced with page three. And yeah. certain newspapers on page three will have a buxom, scantily clad female photograph taking up maybe quite a bit of the page. And that was what the journalists were wanting. That's what the newspaper editors were wanting. Yeah. They couldn't see you in any other role. Exactly. Yes, that's right. That's And obviously you'd, mm-hmm. you'd been aware of this and it went all through the career it strikes me it just must be exhausting 
to have to think about that and deal with that, as well as looking at a mile of chart paper in the aisle in an attic, like the yeah. that extra thing you have to worry about. Do you do you do you sometimes wonder if I didn't have to worry about that crap? I'd probably have discovered another five types of star. You know, does uh, uh, when you look back, or does it drive you in a direction? You know, like that, it just seems like such a burden to carry. It is, and it's the case for women in science. Less so now, but I think it's still there a bit, um, yeah. and it certainly was there hugely for those of us who were one of the first few women into science research. Do you think that the 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 burden that its nature has changed and that it's less obvious, but it's still pernicious? Maybe that does the barrier to entry isn't there, but the barrier to progression still is there. I would argue, actually, that quite a lot of the barriers are still there. If you look at the way toys for children are advertised, yeah. Toys for boys are action kits, construction kits. Toys for girls are dolls tea sets and yeah. pretty princess stuff. And it's still there. Yeah. And it shouldn't be because it's a huge waste of resource. Well, this is the thing. I mean, the, the lack of diversity, but also there must be so much, as you say, wasted talent like the uh, the outlooks, the points of view, the different ways of working, like what could we achieve if everybody just had a fair go at it? Yeah, there's been interesting work done by a US management consultancy company called McKinsey's. And McKinsey's have shown that workforces, this is, you know, across the board, it's not just scientific research, workforces that are more diverse, gender diverse, racial diversity, um, sexual diversity, all kinds of diversity. Workforces that are more diverse are more creative, more flexible and more successful than ones that are a bit more, shall I say, monochromatic. Looking back on uh, what you've achieved, is there is there stuff that you're incredibly proud of that you don't get asked about a lot? You know, I'm sure you'd, you, know, you do lots of talks and it comes back to uh, the pulsar, and then, as I've brought it up now, the struggles to deal with being the only woman in the room. Is is there stuff that you've done that's lesser known that you're like, actually, that was me at full flow, and I'm really, really proud of it? I was one of a fairly small group of women scientists that met to consider how life could be made better for women in science particularly um, in a research environment. And we came up with a scheme that is now very widely adopted um, for making sure that universities, research groups um, are aware of gender issues and indeed other minority issues and rewards them if they are fair to all elements of their community. And do you find that it's never a job that's that there's no you can never be complacent about the level of progress and progress is not only in one doesn't go in one direction it does take time to change society if you try and change it too fast um people manage to do something that looks like change but it's actually just tokenism 
Yeah. So, you know, society's changed a lot in my lifetime. A lot of women work. A lot of women hold on really impressive jobs and have great careers. So there's been an enormous shift in the English-speaking world in my lifetime. Um, there's room for more shift and, and readjustment. But, you know, if you think how society has changed in the last 50 years, it's huge change. I was reading some of your writing on the idea of being a person of faith and also a scientist. And I've never actually spoken to somebody about that before because, you know, we talk about religion or people, are, first of all, people are very personal about their religious beliefs, tends not to be discussed. And, uh, but often a thing that's thrown at people of faith is look, the, we've done all the science at this stage. You know, what you believe simply doesn't exist. And it, so I've never actually had a, a conversation on this. So I was really interested in reading about how you, as a person of faith, that those beliefs coexist with what you know in science. First of all, you are a Quaker. Yep. Mm-hmm. Religious what Society does, of Friends. <laughs> Religious Society of Friends. And yep. uh, what does a Quaker believe? There is no standard formula for a Quaker belief. Um, the only thing we would hold in common is that we believe that in everybody there is something good, something holy. That of God is the phrase we use, that there is that of God in everybody. Maybe more obvious in some than in others, but it's there in everybody. And this has been your lifelong faith. Yeah, I was born into it, brought up in it, and it, it suits me very well. Yeah. When you were headed towards science at an early age, was there tension at that stage before even getting into the depth of the science, uh, going to study science as, was it a devout family, by the way? Yes, I'm slightly scared of the word devout, but yes, we were practicing Quakers. And so choosing science, was that in any way, was there any tension in that? No. When you, as an astronomer, gaze out there, because I, I, like I was raised a Catholic, and I, when I, my concept of where the other world is, or heaven, or God, it's always kind of up, you know, you know, there's something in the sky, or it's out there, uh, it's outside of what I can see in front of me. As as an astronomer, where do you conceptualize uh, a deity or a, a heaven? Where do you put it? Uh, well, I don't conceptualize a heaven. Um, that's not part of my thinking. The deity is both in me and in other people. And I think a number of Quakers would also say out there, out, yeah. outside of us. And when you know about the smallest objects in the universe, you know, that everything is being broken down into as its tiniest constituent parts. And indeed, some some people argue that because, every, because we're all electrons and we're all, you know, uh, we're all composed of tiny little parts, which all obey 
the laws of physics, that anything that has happened would have happened anyway, and there's predeterminism and all that kind of thing. That's one one idea. But uh, a god is when it's inside in all of us. How do you, what do you? I'm trying to think, like, and I know it's it's about faith. Does your mind try to electronify a deity? Like, or does, and is it a, a thing you spend a lot of time thinking about? Uh, I don't know that what you, I don't think I understand what you mean by electronify. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I guess what I mean is that, that, that you're very aware of the nature of existence, you know, like, the boil down to its tiniest, tiniest constituent parts, but then that uh, a, a god, a figure, a deity, what it's made of, or you know that being inside us and all that kind of where it's located, does your mind, knowing what it knows from a scientific point of view, struggle then to place he or she or it? I think if you could revert to your Catholicism. Um, Catholicism has quite a mystic element to it, um, understands the presence of God in and through all sorts of things, maybe even everything. Um, Quakers and Catholics share that kind of sense. Yeah. That's the nearest I can get to answering you. Yeah. And is there, uh, as a scientist, do you... Do you ever wonder whether there will be proof of the existence of God or a disproof? Do, do you fear that or hope for that? Um, I don't have particular feelings about that. I'm not sure there will ever be such evidence because uh, we're talking about personal experience and science doesn't yeah. really interact with personal experience. So I don't think the question, I don't see the question arising. So no, so nothing in science has ever kind of troubled your faith along the way? No, no. Um, Quakerism is very open to inputs from all sorts of areas. Um, so, okay, you, maybe your basic picture of the universe has changed, but that doesn't necessarily destroy your religious life. Moving away from this into something different, what are you very excited by when you see the developments happening in your area these days? Um, one of the really exciting areas, which has only started up in the last few years, is a whole new spectrum called gravitational waves. Okay. And that's just getting going. And boy, the surprises are rolling in. It's yeah. really exciting, and I'm so pleased I've been around to see the opening up of that spectrum. Uh, gravitational waves is a thing that was predicted by mathematics without any data 100 years ago. Is that correct? And it's proven to be true. Does that is that a correct summary? I'm not sure if it was 100 years ago, but um, I think it's probably less than that. But certainly it was predicted that there could be. And um, for quite a few decades, people have been working, building equipment to try and sense this kind of radiation. And it was 2017 that they first picked up one of these waves. They actually saw it. So yeah. we live in a very exciting time as a whole new spectrum is opening up and the discoveries there are rolling in thick and fast. 
Yeah, and that does, uh, gravi- just briefly, a gravitational wave, it relates to the start of the universe, does it? Not especially. Um, I'm sitting in my office at home. I've got a computer in front of me. It's on a table. I'm sitting on a chair. There's gravity between all these things. Now, if I get up and walk away, I won't, but if I get up and walk away, I change the pattern of gravity just around this patch in my room because I moved, my mass has gone away. And that change in the pattern of gravity flies out through space at the speed of light. Wow. Now, I'm probably heavier than I ought to be, but I'm not as heavy as a star. But if a star moves, it makes quite a sizable change in the local pattern of gravity. And that change in the pattern percolates out as a wave. And it's that kind of thing that we're now picking up. And in picking up that, then, do we learn just so much about the shape and size and direction of expansion and of of the universe and the early universe? Is, is it is it what provi- what it provides us just so many clues? Yes, it, it's it's like having a whole new way of well, it is a whole new way of seeing things. So it's going to be immensely rewarding uh, yeah. as the subject gets developed. Yeah. So previously, we would have had to look for light or radio, and if if the mm-hmm. if the light if 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 we weren't in looking in the right place or the something was blocking the light, you wouldn't get the information back. Whereas this is something that permeates everything. Yeah, that's a fair summary. It is um, compared with our ability to pick up light signals, our ability to pick up these gravitational wave signals are at a much earlier stage of development, but. It is rapidly improving, rapidly developing. So it's, it's going to a, remain, remain exciting for at least another decade. <laughs> it's very yeah. exciting. And it's it's quite remarkable to feel that even the tiniest insignificant human being moving around, if you ever feel like you don't have an impact on the world, even just to know that you're, the wave you create by moving around uh, is propagated out no matter yeah. how undetectable. And perhaps sure. an, another civilization out there has equipment so sensitive that they could they could spot us. Maybe, maybe. Yes, who knows? <laughs> All through your career, has any of your motivation been about finding other intelligent life? Or has that is that a byproduct of looking at other things. I've not been particularly interested in, in looking for life elsewhere. Um, it's quite hard to pick up. And what's rather more immediate and accessible is understanding the stars and planets on which there might be or might yeah. not be life. So I think we're still at a rather more preliminary stage. Do you um, think about uh, the future in and like long future and in an abstract sense about where we might be, because you've the benefit of watching it as field develop over, you know, half a century and mm-hmm. you can see how much that's changed. And then you look out at uh, another half century, another hundred years. Do you think about where we might be? I don't try and attempt to, Um, make predictions about where we'll be in 50 years, for example. 
But I am interested in the nearer term future because there's more ways of studying things developing. You know, we are now looking for particles, elementary particles from stars and galaxies, things like neutrinos. Um, So there's new detectors being developed for that. They are very new and it's not yet clear that they're working well enough to pick up real signals from space, real things from space, but they will in the near future for sure. So there's a lot of development like that um, that's coming along. And I'm interested in the things that are coming along, but that's probably only on a time scale of 10 or 20 years. And I'm not inclined to look beyond that because I think there's too many unknown unknowns beyond that at the moment. Yeah. Uh, Speaking about the near future, in that time scale, 10, 20 years, a lot of people who are primary school children or early teens would be fully grown, fully qualified adults at that stage. And this might be the time when they're thinking about what they'd like to be when they grow up. Do you, what would you say to 10-year-old or indeed a 7-year-old, 6, 7, 8-year-old boy or girl and who is looking up at the sky and wondering what's out there? Mm -hmm. I would say keep wondering, keep asking. And if it turns out that you're good at science, you'll discover this when you start doing science in secondary school, probably. Uh, If it turns out you're good at science, think about having a career in that area, if it still interests you as you go through the later school years. My six-year-old daughter, Ruby, uh, she, however we got talking, we were talking about uh, light and then she wanted to know about the sun. So I made the kind of good mistake of giving giving some information which led to a, a, an awful lot more questions, which kept me <laughs> <laughs> kept me answering for quite some time. But what I liked about, you, you know, you said, keep wondering, what I liked about the conversation was that the questions were very simple, but Mm-hmm. came at an angle that I hadn't looked before. So in the end, we were just at, we were just chatting about the origins of the universe. It made me go Googling things. And I found out that if you look at the equations, the universe started in a box about the size of about one and a half meters tall. So I, I, it, or that was mm-hmm. one thing I read on, on, the, on, on Wikipedia. But what I loved was the keep wondering thing, the keep asking. Yes. Uh, it's it's it, that in, inquisitiveness. It's so important, isn't it? And it's really important not to dismiss it, no matter how many questions you feel as a as a parent or a guardian or a minder. Yeah, that's really important. If kids are asking questions, encourage them to ask more, which may be tedious for you and take up a lot of time. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> asking questions in life is very very important. Yeah. Well, I mean, otherwise I wouldn't have known that the sun is is five billion years, has five billion years left in it, which is a bit of comfort, I have to say. <laughs> it'll see us out. <laughs> it'll it'll see us out. That one that one will do us. Professor Jocelyn Bell Burnell, uh, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for sharing your insights of uh, a wonderful career. And also great to hear that you are still excited and watching developments as well too. You'll never get sick of it, I presume. I trust not. Um, I sincerely hope not. (laughs) That would be sad if you shut off, wouldn't it? Yeah.
Um, actually, just one other. Is there another thing that you're really, really interested in that is either completely different or complementary? What does an what does an astronomer do when they're not astronoming? Well, I've been doing quite a bit of gardening, and my garden is a lot better for the attention it's had over the last eighteen yeah. months. <laughs> it's your own tiny patch of the universe that you can you can control. Well, not control, but curate. <laughs> That's a much better term. Thank you so much uh, for talking to me. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Colm. So we're out in the big field yeah. in Gypsy. Where are we now? Um, we're in um, Cork. Um, and I just wanted to tell you about Kai. He's in my class. Okay. And he has autism and his two special interests are space and um, like maps and atlases and countries and continents. How do you know about his special interests? Because he just talks about them all the time. Yeah. And he made up this game called Guess the Country, where he gives you clues and you have to guess which country he's talking about. And what about stars? What does he, what well, does he talk he, about with stars? Well, he has this book called his space book. And in it, it's kind of like a scrapbook, and there's like lots of um, different things about space in it. It's about the pulsar, and he said, the "Pulsar, yeah." That's what uh, Dr. Mel Burnell actually discovered. Oh. And what What did he say? A pulsar. He, he said that it was a star that was that um, like span around, and if you blinked, you would miss it. Wow. So it must have been really hard for her to find it. Yeah. Is he excited by when he was yeah. talking about the yeah. pulsar? And he had a few other show and tell that I don't remember much about, but I just remember that there was one that was like kind of like something to do with, I don't think it was a black hole, but it was something to do with magnetic force. Okay. And I think that the magnetic force made it turn different colours. Oh, right. A star turned different colours. I don't it? know. It was just something in space that because yeah. of magnetic force, it turned different colours. And what uh, colour did he turn? I think it just turned red and blue. Red and blue. Okay. All right. Who's following? Oski's following us there. Oski yeah. the dog. Do you look up at the stars, Oscar? No. I... There's always there's a few there's a few there now. That is uh, I really wanna go home. You wanna go home? Okay. Remember can you say Gypsy? Gypsy Can we see Gypsy? So that's the plough I think. Yeah. That constellation is the plough. Yeah. We just see it now through the clouds. I didn't think we could see any stars tonight. You can see a picture of an umbrella, can you? Yeah. That's a good way of putting it. So I like, oh, I can see an umbrella. So I like to do it like, so I like trace it with my finger, like on my eyes. Yeah. So I see, it's a curvy at the top, then then a star here. And maybe oh, yeah, there's yeah. a star it coming does down. Look like an umbrella. Maybe we should tell people it's the constellation's called the umbrella. The umbrella, the umbrella constellation, discovered by Lily. And will you give credit to Ruby? Yes. No. No, it's just you, is it? 